I'm Sam Towns. I'm Alex Norton. I am Jason Knight, still. <laughs> That's right, go. we have the awesome <laughs> Jason Knight with us today. But before we get to him, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. And today's Forgecast is brought to you by the lovely Rob at Weber Abrasives. So make sure the next time you need abrasives or grinder belts for your workshop, you give a visit to webers.net.au to stock up. And of course, the handsome fellas at Nordic Edge. Knife steels, handle materials, kits... You can find it all at their easy-to-use website, nordicedge.com.au. Yes. Thank you very much for joining us, Jason, especially at such ordinaries. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I always <laughs> like to be on these things. I've been seeing it for a while go through um, either Instagram or Facebook. I guess Instagram. Both. <laughs> and I was Both. following you, uh, Sam. Yep, that's me. And um, so that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's awesome. We, we all cross paths eventually in the knife making community, we're bouncing around all over the place. But um, podcasts are a really good way to, to actually get in touch with people and start seeing those other perspectives. Because no matter how much you learn, there's always more to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got. Uh, I talked to a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago. He's putting on a. He's writing a book on history, knife history, modern knife history, which mm-hmm. I think is very clever because of this era of Instagram and all mm-hmm. the internet stuff, no one yeah. knows where anything came from. I meet people all the time and they're making a knife and they go, Oh, this is one I came, I designed. I'm like, no, you didn't. You didn't yeah. design that. You <laughs> we stand on the from. shoulders of giants. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. It's always kind of funny to me. I just, I smile now. I used to get aggravated, but now I'm like, ah, come on. Yeah. That's fun stuff. So what did y'all do this week? <laughs> uh, we'll start with you alex <laughs> yeah i've been pretty much focused on um just two things this week i was making um a multi-blade trapper um that was a dual liner lock end-to-end opening trapper liner lock um that was um, a pretty cool steel made by uh, baker forge and tool actually it's uh he calls it aurora my it's got a um, monosteel edge, uh, monosteel spine, but a strip of uh, high-layer Damascus that's capped at the top and bottom uh, with brass and copper. So it looks mm-hmm. like the aurora um, that sits in the sky at the poles, which is yeah. quite cool. Uh, it's heckin' heck cool steel, really. Um, but, yeah, do, it was my first multi-blade project, and it, it, it's finished, it's sold, it's gone. It's, um, yeah, Tiger Myrtle, Tasmanian Tiger Myrtle Bill on the handles, Mocky Magane bolsters. It was a, a hell of a build, and uh, I was really happy with how it came out in the end. It looks that's fantastic. Cool. That's a, that's yeah, a it's one of those things, because it's multi-blade and a liner lock. Every time you make one small change to any part of it, it sort of compounds the, the any sort of tolerance differences, <laughs> start getting exponentially worse throughout the entire thing as it goes together. So it really <laughs> tested it my ability to keep everything you know, parallel where it needed to be parallel, perpendicular jump. where it needed to be perpendicular and uh, just all tolerance is tighter and I'm, I'm trying to work on that in my work. So and I was really happy with how it came out. Uh, and the other thing that I've been doing is I, I finally finished filming my online slip joint course that I've been working on for about a year now um, mm-hmm. and it's being edited up and, and should be uh, finally should done after working on it for so long. Um, and I was really happy with the 
the slip joint that came out of the course as well. But um, I was going to maybe keep it or give it to somebody as a gift or something, but I decided I'm going to do a giveaway with it. um, Send it back. Sometimes you've got to throw a fish back. (laughs) You're going to give it away to the people who purchased the class? (laughs) Yeah, also I thought I might pull a name out of the hat from the people who who get in first in the first month or something and give give it out to them. That's complicated, all those parts. I know Coy Baker. He lives about an hour from here. What a legend. Yeah. He's such a good yeah. dude. Yeah, super nice. He was a cabinet maker, and then he just kind of got into steel. And over the last year, he has, like, a couple of my friends are working there, too. And I'm like, hey, mm-hmm. these guys are working for me. What happened, you know? <laughs> so, we we had him on the show about six months ago. And, um, boy, that guy knows his stuff. He knows it so well, and uh, we, we got to get him back on. He wants to come back on. We want to do a Damascus episode, like a, just all Damascus, just a special yeah. on it, because uh, I can't think of anyone better to talk about it, really, other than Steve Schwartzer, who we're also trying to get on. <laughs> yeah, you could. Yeah, I could get him on there. You know, he listens to me. He does what I tell him to do. <laughs> yeah, we had. We, well, we had uh, Jim Morrissey on um, Shamrock Knives. Um, he's he's basically lives in Steve's. <laughs> she's there every weekend <laughs> but some of that stuff he's doing with the the 3d printed stuff is it's just cool it's changed everything very yeah. clever I, sometimes i wish when we come up with a new process or something like that that we could somehow copyright it just for the sake of when it points back people go oh that's the guy who did it yeah you know, like yeah. in america for so many years we were we were told, oh, Damascus came from this one guy's mind, but now we know that it came from Daryl Meyer's mind. You know, Daryl Meyer was first guy really sharing it with people on a university level back in the 60s. <laughs> so mm. pretty clever fellow. I don't know if you ever oh. heard of him, but you should have. To uh, give credit where credit's due, the the double-bladed trapper that I did, both liner locks, uh, which were invented by, um, it was Michael Walker, I believe, who is still making knives and still coming up with new locking mechanisms all the time. It's He's cool. He's a cool, he's a cool guy. Yeah. yeah. Absolute inspiration. Yeah. But, I uh, um, introduced him to Alicia Newton, who runs the Blade Show. Mm-hmm. But he's older, so I said, this is my friend Alicia. She was on that show, Naked and Afraid. He's like, oh, oh. He's like, I don't know what that show is, man. I'm like, oh, man, this joke didn't work. <laughs> he's too busy making new new locking mechanisms to be watching TV. Yeah. yeah. Um, my song of the week this week is I've been listening to a lot of, um, a lot of slower, sort of more uh, melodic stuff, but one came across my playlist that – just took me back. I mean, growing up in the eighties, we had one of those old hi fi's with the the turntable that took up the entire end of the lounge room. And (laughs) I, I loved the sound of the crackle when it started up before the music Mm -hmm. kicked in. And that just that crackle, because it was a big stereo system, like big speakers. And, um, I've never been able to have that replicated, even if they try and simulate it. But my favorite song, that was in my parents' collection was uh, by Ben E. King. It's the song Stand By Me. And the opening of that song, it's a masterpiece of a song. and It doesn't get anywhere near enough credit, but it's making a comeback because apparently it's featured in that, um, this is a new TV show. I haven't seen it yet, but it appeared in that. So all this new generation of people that never would have heard of it before uh, are being exposed to this song, which really 
is a masterpiece of music. It really is. And the opening of it particularly sounds good with the vinyl crackle because it's sort of this this upright bass line that is super catchy, just sort of fades out of the crackle. Hmm. And every time I hear it, it just takes me back to those those times as a kid. And uh, I, I just love it. Also, the guy's got an incredible voice and it's just one of those very special songs. But yeah, That's Benny King, Stand, Stand By Me, one of the uh, great songs of the 60s and phenomenal if you ever get a chance to listen to it on vinyl um, mm. because of that opening bass line. Just, yeah, it takes me back every time I hear it. Um, not just a personally nostalgic song, it, it really is a masterpiece. So if you get a chance to listen to it, definitely listen to it. If you can get a chance to listen to it on vinyl, definitely do that. <laughs> we have a couple record players around here, turntables. Yeah. So it's kind of a thing. And my kids like that. My son is a big record collector, and so is my, oh, my daughter is also. Yeah. And we had, I don't know, we had all of my wife's dad's record collection. So <laughs> that Some of them can my, be worth quite a bit nowadays. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's a thing here in East Tennessee. This is... I live in East Tennessee in, in uh, the U.S. Uh, near a town called Bristol, which is technically the birthplace of country music. Hmm. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. That's what they Very say. Cool. And Tina Turner was born about four hours west of here. Yeah, right. Five hours, something like that. <laughs> I used to tell people that was my mom. <laughs> <laughs> is that where you get your singing voice? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Sam, what have you been up to this week? Um, yeah, so I've I've been uh, away from the shop for a little bit. Um, I've been dealing with some family stuff, and you know, spending time at my new girlfriend's place. Um, so I haven't done a lot in the shop, but I was out there today, and I uh, finally did the grinds on the uh, Hema blade for the Scottish broadsword um, commission that I had um basically he gave me this uh cheap crap uh scottish broadsword that he'd bought from a you know flea market um and just wanted me to take the fittings and put it onto a a combat ready blade and uh, you know i told him it was probably not a good idea because it's really thin brass like for the for the guy crush his hand like (laughs) he's like i don't care take my money just do it and i'm like okay fine whatever (laughs) so i got the blade heat treated last week uh week before last and now i've finally got the grinds on it and stuff and i'm just fit- fitting up a new handle for it because the handle it came with is round it was just a piece of dowel and they just <laughs> drilled the the tang was just like one of those you know rat tail tangs and they just drilled a hole the size of the tang through the through the block of wood and slotted it on there so uh, I'm, I'm making an entirely new handle for it so at least that bit will stay secure <laughs> um whether or not the guard stays together, I don't know. But, you know, it was his money. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's wild. Big swords are a whole nother set of physics. You know, it's an interesting dynamic yeah. when you start lengthening the blade and lengthening the handle. It's pretty wild. <laughs> yes. It's a bit bit insane. But, um, yeah, other than that, it's just been um, making preparations for starting on other sword projects and stuff like that, waiting for some abrasives to show up. Um, I had a, a good friend of mine, Thomas, uh, send me a bunch of, uh, 2x48 belts that he got accidentally sent, uh, which I was convinced that I would be able to run on my 2x72 by shortening the arm and like, you know, 
making it like all tighten up. I got out to the shop today and realized that I, there is no way I can get the, the arm far enough back <laughs> to put the 48s on. So I'm going to have to find something to do with those. I'll probably end up giving them away to someone else uh, here in Perth. Make yourself uh, an alternate uh, platen that's actually the, where the wheels are closer together. I'd, like it doesn't matter. Like it, it literally. Oh really? Matter, right? I even You're tried it with like, too high. Yeah, I, I literally yeah. tried it with like my um, the uh, eight inch dry, uh, contact wheel and a bunch of other stuff to try and shorten <laughs> the length. But yeah, the drive wheel, the the whole body of the the um, grinder is too long itself. So. Um, I'd never actually yeah. been present in front of a two by forty eight before. I'd only ever been mm-hmm. around two by seventy twos, and then my mate Broden brought his over during Niels's forty eight hour challenge, yeah. uh, and he, he had his grinder there. And I'm like, "This is a toy grinder. This is a, <laughs> yeah. a miniature. I've never. This is adorable." I, <laughs> but he I got a lot of work done on it. He got a lot of work done on it. I originally had a two by forty eight, and I sold that to get the two by seventy two. And I forgot how small the two by forty eight are. So yeah, I'll uh, I'll have to find a place to to just put these uh, to give them away. I suppose, Good excuse to get a new grinder. Can always well, have I more mean, grinders. This this is also true. I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, honestly, the the amount of belts I got sent. Yes, I could probably run that grinder for quite a while. Um, oh yeah. But uh, yeah. Anyway, my song of the week this week uh, is actually one I used to listen to when I was a little kid. Uh, and it was it was notable for me because it was the first song that I'd ever heard use something that wasn't an instrument to make a noise, uh, and it was actually the shattering of a light bulb um, right. <laughs> in the music, uh, and it's called "Yellow Lemon Tree" by Fool's Garden. Um, and my mum used to play it in the mornings. Funnily enough, on vinyl as well. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was the most unexpected noise. In a, in a song I mean this was before I knew about you know Wagner using cannons in you know, you know like um, in his overtures but yeah mm-hmm. no it was it, it stuck out in my mind it's also just got a really boppy kind of tune it's it's a very kind of um, whimsical song but oh you know I'm a, I'm a sucker for whimsy Sam yeah well it's also <laughs> one I learned to play on the guitar so one of the first things I learned to play on the guitar so definitely yeah. well worth a listen but anyway, with that being out of the way now, Jason Knight, thank you very much for joining us. For those who don't hey, know you, who uh, are who are you, and what do you do? <laughs> I am a janitor at Knight Forge Studio, and I'm not really good at it. And I'm always being threatened to get fired for my janitorial uh, lack of. You know, Is it like a beautiful mind? Do you sneak in after dark and work on the grinders and make beautiful knives? Oh <laughs> uh, man. Yeah, I'm Jason Knight. I am a bladesmith, um, entrepreneur, uh, designer, you know, entertainer sometimes. <laughs> I try to get people, I try to provoke people's thoughts and also have a school. So break down the, uh, the barriers that they build up so they can't make knives. So I try to knock them out of the way. <clears throat> so, Very cool. Yeah. And and sometimes scary looking judge on the forge car oh, on the uh, on the on forge and fire <laughs> forge and fire yeah I did that one time yeah, yeah. one say, time yeah sometimes I run into people locally and it's always a guy it's like a, some big giant guy hey Bubba I, I seen you on that TV show come over here and take a picture with me and I'm like, okay <laughs> okay uh, and if I'm in with my daughter I have to say no they're like are you that guy oh damn it so if I'm if I do if I'm with her, I have to say no. 
she just won't tolerate it. She's like, Dad? And I'll be like, no, that's not me. I don't really look for publicity from it, honestly. It's the thing. I, I'm glad that I could do that. But I was, I'm not pulling on horn, but I was a famous knife maker before I ever did that show, mm. you know? <laughs> yes. And so it's like now people don't remember. I was like, but I did. Yeah, they don't just like, they don't just TV hand out show, MS. Like, <laughs> I was like, bladesmith. I'm a bladesmith. Yep. But um, so yeah, that's fun. But I have a school, and I do that a lot, and I I do corporate training. I have people come in from different little groups, and I show them how to make knife, and they kind of work together better after that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I have people come from all over the world, which is is fun for the most part, you know. And uh, um, so what what have you been up to this week? Uh, rearranging my studio. I have equipment that I never had before. So I got a surface grinder in a, in a mill, like a full size surface grinder, big Bridgeport mm. mill. Wow. And they're on this old 443 phase, which I don't know what that means. That's uh-huh. something to do with electricity, which I heard is kind of like water. It doesn't <laughs> drown you. They electrocute you. So, um, don't so mix I've got it. that. Or, yeah, don't mix it. <laughs> Uh, so I've got that rearranged in the shop and just trying to keep, keep the piece in there. We have, eh, it's about 2000 square feet. Um, and I'm trying to purchase a property next to me that has a commercial building on it that I'll move my studio to. So instead of driving, I can walk to work. Yeah. Nice. That'd be nice. I had that for most of my life when I, I moved here about four years ago. Um, I lived five hours South in the in the swamps of south carolina mm-hmm. so now i live up here in the mountains of tennessee which weather is perfect and everything's very different and i like it a lot better but my studio is 20 minutes away so i have to drive to get to it which i don't want to do anymore yeah <laughs> so I'm gonna, whatever it takes to get here i'm going to do it yeah there's there's yeah. pros and cons to being that close to your work because my, my workshop's walking distance from my house, but sometimes that means you, you think, oh, I'll put off going. I'll, I'll, I'll get there quick. I'll, I'll just <laughs> sleep in a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. the, the worst one for me was always the fact that I knew that, like, you know, the, the, the couch and the air con and stuff was, was only, you know, 10 <laughs> meters away inside the house. And so it's like, oh, lunchtime. And then you'd sit down and, like, four hours later, you're like, oh, uh, yeah, I forgot that I was supposed <laughs> to be working. Oops. I forgot what I was doing. <laughs> yeah. My old my old shop was twelve by twenty mm-hmm. with a little awning off of it, and uh, I mean I worked in there for almost twenty years. Yeah, right. But I had originally built it as like a little wood carving studio. I used to do a lot of wood carving mm-hmm. and wood sculpture, and then um, I was making knives. I've been making knives actually since nineteen eighty seven. Mm. I do like stock grind, you know, hollow grinding mostly. And then uh, in 2001, I got into forging, and then I added the lean-to and started I started doing bladesmithing. And I wasn't smart enough to just have it as my spare time gig. I was just like, I'm just doing this. I'm not doing something else. I was all in. Yep. That's always my plan. And I was like, I'm just going to do this. Plan A is fine with me. I'll just go. Yep, fall forward. Don't have something to fall back on. Yeah. yeah. I know the feeling. Alex and I are both the same. We're both full time yeah. at, at making yeah. knives. It's it's a it's a big dive. It yeah, is. it's it's interesting, right? It's an interesting thing. But I always look at it like if I don't see if I don't I go to somebody's house and I don't see a handmade knife in their kitchen or on their use, I'm like, 
it's not oversaturated. There's still plenty of people who don't have one. Oh, millions. And I feel like I was like, if you're, if you are in, you like tools, you like to be outdoors or you like to cook or any of these things, then you should have a really nice knife, a good one that you can trust, you know? Yeah. And I like that idea, but I always, I've never been much into making fantasy things. And I do love to make swords mm-hmm. and I've made, uh, I don't know, probably 30 or 40 of them over the years and maybe eight European style swords of like, but old, I like the really old stuff. Mm-hmm. And what I've been listening to is that a Mongolian, the who or the who? Oh yeah, the who. Mongolian. <laughs> I like that, but I also like to listen to the lo-fi. It's like lo-fi beats to study by. Oh yeah, like chill step sort of thing. Yeah, because yeah. I start hearing people talking, then I'm like, I'm trying to like, what are they talking about? What is <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a specific song that you'd like to add to our Forgecast playlist? Mm, oh, that's a good one. Let me. Ones that I probably go to the most, um, I play Tom, Tom Sawyer by Rush uh, a yeah. lot, just mm-hmm. because it's, the intro is awesome. But uh-huh. I also like about four different Iron Maiden songs, so I'll, I'll throw the <laughs> Iron Maiden "Wasted Years" song yep. to you because that's that's one of my favorites. It's a pretty deep song and uh, it has a lot of meaning, and I, I like it. It's a great song. Yeah. And Iron Maiden's one of those bands that if you're not listening to it really turned up, you're not getting the whole scope of the music. The experience. Yeah. You, you have to turn it right up. Otherwise, you can't just sort of have that sort of softly playing in the background. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things you got to get into. That's right. I was um, listening to Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner while hand sanding. That's not a good thing. You try and match up to the, the gallop and it just <laughs> do yourself an injury. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, so we have a bit of a tradition on the show where we like to ask guests to tell us the story of their, their main anvil. Even if they've got multiple anvils, everyone's got their, their, their one that they, they don't tell the other anvils about, but it's their favorite. Uh, yeah what what's the story behind it um tell us about it i've been fickle with anvils over the years (laughs) and i guess i started out i had a fisher 100 pound cast steel fisher which was a great anvil i didn't know Mm. that at the time i didn't realize how great it was and i (laughs) sold it to someone and i got a big 400 pound fisher that was not a great anvil it was kind of soft and um and then i i think i sold that one too now in my new studio i'm if i see an anvil i kind of buy it and if i don't like it i'll pass it along so my favorite one is the Soderfer's. i don't know how you say the last part of it how how to how, some german pig latin i can't <laughs> speak yeah <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah 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 gesundheit um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, Anvil Nerds would be like, it's a, it's a, it's from 1927, but it's a forged steel um, double horn anvil. So one horn is kind of roundy and one of them's flat. But man, I like that anvil. And it's not perfectly flat or anything. And I'm, I learned over time, I was like, that don't really matter. You know, you don't, mm-hmm. like, everybody's like, we need it to be flat and all these dimensions. I'm like, no, you don't. You can only forge that much at one time. You know? So it doesn't really and matter. And you get to you know, know it as spot. well. Like you'd be able to do things on that that somebody that's not familiar with it wouldn't be able to do because they don't know where all the dips and the crannies are. Yeah, so. yeah. But that one's my favorite. 
man, I got an animal pet peeve though. I got to tell you, it's, mm. it's really has to do with a lot of bladesmiths. I go to someone's shop and they'll have an anvil and it's like, it's perfect. You know, it's like really good, but it's razor blade sharp yeah. edges all the way down. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at them like, so you're just kind of new at this, aren't you? You don't really <laughs> forge it. I mean, I'm, I'm going to pick on everybody. I don't care who it is. I'm just mm-hmm. like, you got to dress these things. So on mine, I have them radiused on both sides. So they're about, oh, they might start at a, three i'm gonna use inches okay not the mm-hmm. canadian system you guys probably use a canadian one <laughs> yeah. that, that really rare obscure metric one yeah millimeters millimeters but i really measure our crocodile about three eighths of an inch to sharp on both sides mm-hmm. and then that makes life easier yeah yeah I, I, I do exactly like, the same Ooh. Yeah, mine mine's in segments rather than a gradient. Gradient's probably smart, but um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, you you sort of learn over time what you need for the various tasks that you're doing in your particular world, and you're always going to need that variance. Yeah, that's fun, but that's my favorite anvil right now. <laughs> you're right, <laughs> right now. Yeah, but what about the um, doing the wood carving led you to knives? There was that jump there. That what what happened? Were you just carving with a, a whittling knife, and you thought, "Hmm, I could make one." Of these. <laughs> yeah. No, um, so my last name being Knight, um, it my wife tra- I always thought it was a made up name, and I, I, somewhat it is a made up name still because there was something that made it more specific. Mm-hmm. But our family has been in America for so long. It was forgotten, and I always say it was hidden because somebody stole a pig, and they didn't want to be the <laughs> whatever you know, Mick Knights or Mac Knights or whatever they were. They just changed it to Knight. But um, I was always like interested, and my dad would tell me tall tales all the time, and um, it just made me go, "Man, I gotta, I gotta make swords and spears." And he's like, "Yeah, there's dragons and giants out there, and you're gonna have to go deal with them." <laughs> also. Son, I wanted to tell you, you're going to be sent to another planet at some time in the future. And but you're going was to, he you're a going Scientologist? No, he just, <laughs> <laughs> he just fun. <laughs> he would um, read me John Carter of Mars, you know. Oh, and, cool. And yeah, Edgar, yeah. Edgar Rice Burroughs and uh, Conan, you know, Robert E. Howard stuff. But he'd be like, you're going to go there before and you're going to teach the Tharks how to make swords. I'm like, <laughs> okay. Yep, so sweet. I just, I remember we were going somewhere and my cousin Brooke is sitting in the back seat of a Toyota Corolla. We're going to see a movie and he's telling me some story about a suit and we're going to f- bury it in the ground and I got to go find it when I hit puberty. I think I was 10. <laughs> <laughs> and my cousin Brooke's going, Uncle Michael, that's some bullshit right there. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, oh, man, that's, I believed it. You know, That's pretty awesome. That somewhere. is pretty awesome. And it is. I got into wood carving because I couldn't make knives. So I was, I was learned, I would go, uh, my mom took me to a fellow named Walter Brind. Um, I used to not say about it because one time he told me he was going to sue me for talking, that saying that he showed me anything. And I was just like, <laughs> I, I just, like, I don't even care anymore. <laughs> He's a grumpy old man. He'll be fine. Yeah. You know? So, uh, but I would go over there and every time I'd grind something, and they weren't terrible. You know, you're not good at some of them when you start. He'd be like, no, oh, that's trash, boy. Yep. He'd chunk it and chunk them. And I was like, well, I'll just carve wood. I started making wooden swords on there. And I'm like, boy, you could, I could really just carve with this thing. So I started carving with the grinder. And I got professional carving tools and things. And I would do 
walking sticks and uh, I got where I did some bigger sculptures. I'd rough them in with a chainsaw and then I'd go back and chisel them and stuff. So I'd make, I don't know, all kind of crazy stuff, whimsical things and killer whales and stuff that I was interested in, you know? Awesome. But I did a lot of, a lot of carvings like that. And then when I first started making forged blades in 2001, I kind of did some kind of carving on the handle of almost every knife. So the first, I don't know, hundred knives had some, you know, it either had a, a bird or an image or a design or something. I I do carvings on them. So I don't see those. It's kind of funny. I almost, I almost never see those knives anymore. Kind of makes sense though. I mean, given like anyone who's familiar with your work will know, like everyone knows what a Jason Knight knife looks like. It's all very flowing curves and, you know, like hard edges and stuff like that it kind of makes sense that you would come from that carving background because they, they do almost look carved in some circumstances. Um, I, I specifically, I'm thinking of like your fighters and stuff like that. The really kind of rough forged, fullard, um, you know, harpoon pointed fighters are very kind of, uh, organic in their shape, uh, which is something I know that a lot of people love. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, do right, you, so. <laughs> do you ever want to, um, sort of go back to your roots and, and start carving handles and things again? Yeah, uh, so Henning Wilkerson is a friend of mine. He's from mm-hmm. South Africa. I don't know if you guys ever. Yeah, we know him. He's he's fun, and uh, he will always say, "Hey, quit doing all that trash you're making all the time and do something <laughs> really nice." <laughs> so, uh, when I, you know, that's based on when I moved here. I I was really hardcore studying, like forged all the way to done stuff because. Mm-hmm. As bladesmiths, we're thinking, well, how did people do this a long time ago? And how did they forge these swords? You know, we're thinking about swords all the time. And I've come to some interesting conclusions. They're just my opinion, whether they matter or not. You know, there's a Mm -hmm. hypothesis as good as anyone's. But I I studied that real hard. I still, it's hard because I really love the look of it. And I noticed that some, you know, bladesmiths will try. They will forge stuff and leave the forging on it. But it's not. Mm. You know, like it's, you gotta have, mm. you gotta have the lines in there. You know, you gotta have the, where your forged bevel is. And if you put a fuller, <laughs> fuller in the, those are fun to make and it makes you a better bladesmith. But you know, what's crazy keeping those things straighter. It's really <laughs> tricky. Cause they, right around where the belly of the blade is, I always want to do that. I'm like, yeah. and that's still every time, same thing, I, same problems every time. And it has to do with how you hold it and how mm. you finish or whatever. I do a lot of it on the hammers, but. And then you get people like Lynn Ray that are just like a robot that can just put forge <laughs> finishes on things that are as good as if they've been ground. And he would just say, oh, fresh out of the fire. I'm like, no way. No, no way they haven't touched that. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, um, yeah, I've done production stuff before. So when I'm forging and I teach a class, I tell people, so that, oh, that's just over forging. See that? Mm-hmm. You're just... <laughs> grinding the shape. There's, yeah. there's so many mythological things in bladesmithing that I was taught that I, I die, I change now. I just eliminate it because uh, like, it's kind of nonsense. Like mm. no one forges in every dimension perfectly. Because if they did, then I would have so much decarb on the edge, it wouldn't cut a dang gum thing. You know? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's it's always fun to go back and play that game. We have a friend, Liam Hoffman. He forges axes. And he's got a process. Now he can almost forge the profile perfectly to shape. And then on the edge, he's, they all have to be, a, you know, they have to be a certain way for just the purpose of it working. 
So he's got a shear and a punch press. He puts it in there and it goes yeah. perfect every time. Yeah. Very clever. I imagine you don't overforge got... a little bit. You don't get the thickness that you want. Yeah, I, he would have to have some pretty exacting standards to to consistently produce that quality that he does. Hmm. Oh yeah, it's really good. Actually, the the first time I ever came across you was um, was through Liam Hoffman's channel. Actually, when he did his Journeyman Smith set, um, and got you to take a look at all of his all of the uh, stuff that he'd done. Yeah. Uh, I think that was the first time I actually came across you and your work, and kind of went, "Oh, this is interesting." <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, he's a good he's a good young fella. He's He's dating my daughter, so he better be. <laughs> he better be. <laughs> he better be. He did ask permission. He asked yeah. permission, so I was like, that's cool. We used to ride motorcycles together, too. So. You'd be a well. scary dad because you'd go to the door and you'd be there with a knife. <laughs> <laughs> or a wall of them. <laughs> a wall of knives. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah, I have a bunch of ki- all these kitchen knives that we kind of collect. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so what, what sort of... Um, where do you where do you source your inspiration from? Is there any specific people that inspire you? Are there do you look for nat- to nature for inspiration, or, or where do you get it from? Mm, for now, so yeah, I would look at things that I like. I would look at a developing your own style. Really, is uh, a, of subtleties. It's a thing of adding subtleties. Mm. I'll, I'll go back in time a little bit to when I started making knives. Um, I was making drop point style hunters like George Heron, who is, you don't know who George Heron is in America. You need to, because he, he really had influence even on Bob Loveless on some of the things Mm -hmm. that Loveless did. Loveless never skinned an animal or hunted or anything yet. He was famous for the drop point hunter. Whereas Heron was famous for making these perfect, beautiful hunting knives. And he used them all over the place and people took them all over the world and, and use them and they were beautiful but the, but his experience came from using mm-hmm. so that's how he came up with his designs mm. and so as i b- began as a maker i wanted to have experience in my designs not just be like hey this is a chopper even though i've never gone out there and chopped anything or can't you know camp knife and when i first started making those i was like oh make them real light and thin so you can <laughs> swing them faster mm-hmm. i'm like well me and adam derosiers we we were making them like half inch thick because you can't swing them that fast. You could swing them only so fast, but the mass would cut through things. So as you play with all these different dynamics, the physics of the knife, and then trying to add in a style, uh, one of the things I learned not to do was look at other people's knives. That was yeah. like the, the worst thing because some people were like, this is a fighter. And I'd be like, what are you fighting with these knives is what I wanted to know. Like, <laughs> And we finally came up and was like, let's just make it look faster and sleeker because it's really for fighting poverty at the end of the day. You know, yeah. We the knife, we sell the knife, fighting our own poverty every single day. So you can make it however you want to. You know, people hold them and they sit in their chair like, I just got in a knife fight with yep. me and mano a mano. I'm like, no, man. My knife As- fighting style is you're sleeping and I sneak up and get you while you're sleeping. With a screwdriver. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've, we've ranted about this a few times on the show because um, Sam and I are both avid hunters and some of the knives that you see as hunting knives or skinning knives in particular, people call skilling knives, it would destroy the, the hide. It would poke holes all the way through. <laughs> it just would be useless. Oh, um, and we did an episode on chef knives, culinary knives. I mean, people need to get in the kitchen and start cooking with their knives to, to really get a sense of the shapes that should be there. Yeah. Uh, 
That's right. You can't just slap a label on something and, and expect it to function like that. But, yeah. Uh, the, that's a funny one. The, um, the idealistic maker, um, the, the, the new maker who is getting into using the knives and they go, oh, well, I, I made this for this. It, it's always has thumb ramps and like <laughs> just places like, don't put your fingers on a knife there. Stop putting your hand there on the knife. That's not for your hand to go there. You know, I, I'm highly... <laughs> opinionated about those things especially with hunting knives i wish i could show you one of these herons man they're they're like perfect they're like mm. i don't know they're perfect we'll have I to skin, look at them up later <laughs> man all the deer that i skin I, I filleted fish with the thing i thought that was my job one year the year my son was born in 97 i thought my job was hunting i think i killed 27 deer that year you're right and i don't know how many fish that we caught and my wife used to work for the um uh, game fisheries and she was in them she was in they're the doing office, uh, so they did hunting as a job will very quickly teach you how to actually uh get the most out of a knife oh yeah <laughs> absolutely i'm actually yeah, my friend chris would just throw the deer in the back of the truck and i'm like in the summertime that's gonna be gross <laughs> <laughs> if the hunting knife can't core the butt it ain't no good that's all i'm saying yeah that's right you clean the poop shoot otherwise it's all downhill <laughs> from there <laughs> Where, oh. All right, guys, what's the worst part of the – there's a mythological hunting knife that I really hate. It's good for getting coffee off your fire, but it ain't good for doing <laughs> anything else. You know, the one with the gut hook on it? No, yeah. To be any knife with a gut hook, to be honest, I've just never seen one that would actually be – any sort of functional except for cutting cordage that was a little bit too far out of reach that you couldn't get enough blade on it. <laughs> you just try, just loop it over a little bit. The only, the my, only my friend got, Adam I, DeRosers. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go oh, for right. it. I'm sorry. You first. Oh, no. Yeah. So the, the only gut hook I've ever seen that actually worked was there was a company called The Raptor, which is literally, it had reusable Stanley knife blades in like a mm. plastic holder. And you would just like pop a hole in the, the hide and then put it in and rip. And that was it. And that's the only yeah. kind of quote unquote gut hook that I've ever th used that I actually thought was useful. Yeah. <laughs> but if you can't do that with a full bladed knife, yeah, practice hunting more. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I always, yeah, that and saws. I hate it when I see people bring saws out to take an animal apart. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, no, it was like, why would they would cut through this bone? I was like, you know, there's cartilage on both sides. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Come here, I'll show you right on your own chest. <laughs> Where's so your you school get... located again? <laughs> <laughs> it's not that kind of school. That's <laughs> so funny. In all those stories, too, all the fighting knife stories I've heard, I've heard them all, man. I've heard a lot of them. And then I had the guy who was like the head of Delta Force for several years as a friend of mine. And he was like, those guys work for me. They never did that nonsense. They weren't tomahawking <laughs> anybody. That's bull crap. Uh -huh. I'm like, I believe it. Make yeah. your, you need to make yourself the weapon. You mean, Like Doug Marcato, he'd be able to kill you with anything. <laughs> That's it. Kill you with a coffee mug. <laughs> he could try. He could try. <laughs> yes. Um, so you're um, quite you know, famously a, a ABS master smith, we get a lot of people write in to the show with questions about bladesmithing and uh, aspirations of following that journey and, and making it to there one day. Do you have advice for people that are wanting to go down that road? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. My advice on that is 
you're doing it for you. That that whole certification, that whole process that you're enduring and putting yourself through, the only person who cares once it's done is you. And that's the that's the most important thing, you know. And you're going for your master blacesmith. I, I did mine in 2007. Funny on the board, there was a board at the school, which is somebody has it in their collection. And I was like 115. I was 115, and my friend Bert Foster was 101. And um, it doesn't matter what order we came in as to do it, but the, the going through the process, challenging ourselves to to actually meet these parameters and understand these things. And here's what it means. When you get your master Smith rating, it means, you know, all of the basic things about knife making. Mm. You, you, you can you stop. Mastered, <laughs> you can start. You've mastered all the basic things about it. And it's really up to you to keep up with uh, the, so this is the crazy thing about knife making, especially with swords. And you get, I mean, if you make swords, you, you understand this. 20 years ago, people were making swords. Mostly they were fantasy swords, you know, they were. And um, the more we study swords from, you know, people, you get like Peter Johnson and Kevin Cash, and these guys that do a lot of study on old swords and, and bring that information to us. And there's, there's a lot more, but then we start making these swords. It's like, man, this is a whole nother set of physics and a different set of knife making thoughts about it. Uh, so it, it, it changes. So you have to kind of be, progressive in bladesmithing because the information is always renewing itself and the dynamic changes a little bit or the trends change or whatever, you know? So for me, I didn't want to just make big Arkansas style Bowie knives. You know, that's one of the things that helped me develop my own style. I wanted to sculpt guards and make things and change things, but I also want to learn how to make a new knife or learn how to do a new subject, you know? So if somebody says, master bladesmith I said well I'm always trying to maintain that you know that maintain that level of mastery I didn't get there and say oh I'm a master bladesmith in fact I don't even put it on my knives anymore I mean not because I you know because I'm not it's because it's like I just feel like my name is on there that's important and I study for mastery all the time I'm always trying to attain it and share the information with people so it's not uh, the end of a thing. It's the beginning of a thing. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I suppose a little bit like a, like a Michelin star for a chef. You know, you, you got to keep it. Otherwise, you'll, it. yeah, if you, if you dip off, you lose that. I mean, you don't lose Master Smith, but I mean, you lose a Michelin star if you slipped up too often. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, it's, it's a good way to see it as the beginning. It's sort of a qualification that shows you down do everything nice and clean you can you can now begin your knife making journey yeah that's what i always somebody was like do it and then do whatever you want yeah <laughs> sam will be going uh, for his journeyman soon yeah cool in the next year or two yeah very cool very cool Little long so journey. who um you guys know bruce barnett oh yeah yep he lives uh the fastest man in hours. australia the king of slip joints he lives yeah, about two I and a like half hours like. south of me <laughs> Yeah, I like Bruce, and um, there's a couple other guys that we used to see all the time from Australia that I I haven't seen him in a few years, but I see I see Bruce pretty often. I think. Yeah, well, Bruce will be. Prob- I think he's going to be a Blade Show this year. I think he's aiming yeah. for it. Cool. Um, but yeah, hopefully I'll be able to meet you in person when I get to Blade Show eventually. <laughs> cool. Get to sit in front of that panel of judges. Always the fun. Yeah, part. you'll do fine. 
Yeah. You're fine. Do you ever go into um, judge people? Yeah, I used to do it pretty often. Uh, I judged journeyman three times, and I judged masters three times. And uh, it's so hard. It's hard. Well, mm. it's easier to do masters because there's just things <laughs> that if you don't do, it's like fail, fail, fail. Yeah. It's, it, the no funny reward. thing to me is the guys that are like, oh, that judge is so hard. That judge is so difficult. And I'm like, no, they're not. Because I've argued with them about stuff that should, they'd be like, this should pass. And I'm like, no, it should fail. And here's why. <laughs> and I, was like, and I was like, so then I became the one. But I've, I've failed. I've failed people for things. I feel one of my favorite knife makers one time in the whole world, Andrew Mears. He did his journeyman Smith knives and he had, he had all these badass knives on his table. And I'm like, why didn't you put these in? Now he passed. Okay. But I was the one jerk who failed him. <laughs> but you have, you know, if you have six judges and you get, you know, five of them pass you, one of them fails you. It's like, Oh, it was the jerk. You know, but he, he's a great maker. He's one of my favorites. And I wish I had bought knives from him back then when, you could get your hands on one, you know. So he, but, did he forgive you? Yeah, yeah of course he did. <laughs> but <laughs> oh, there's other guys that I've, that I failed, and I and I told them exactly. I never hid it. I always said this is what, and I'd go talk to them, and I'm like, hey, this is what you did wrong, and then um, it made them better knife makers, I think. And if you if you're not willing, it's it's funny if you're willing to take the test, but you're not willing to possibly fail and get better then like then don't take the test you know yeah. i mean it's just it's a test it's for you the, the whole it's point for you of the, to get better you know yeah the whole point of the journey especially like from my perspective has always been to just improve and to you know make my blades it makes my blades with the idea that they will be sitting in front of a panel of judges and that's something that keeps me honest <laughs> yeah. that's cool the inside part is the part i one of the things I, I like to see with these tests, I'd like to see, um, you know, in the old days, the old, old master smith, like Steve Schwarzer, mm -hmm. their master smith rating, they had to forge an integral knife mm -hmm. and in front of Bill Moran. And that was mm -hmm. their test. And that's how they got their master's rating. Yeah, right. It was actually a forging test. And I, I kind of wish that we were requiring something like that. You know, I, I say we, but I mean, like me, I would be like, okay, you have to forge this knife to these parameters in front of another master bladesmith. I was like, that'd be kind of cool. I noticed Isn't that I forged in fire. <laughs> I noticed when I was looking at Ford's the requirements. Fiasco. <laughs> um, in the requirements, it can like the master smith who does the practical test, the, you know, like the chops and the bend and all that kind of stuff can request the applicant to forge a knife in front of them. And I always thought it was yeah. strange that they didn't like that wasn't a requirement. It was only a you know if they are is for some reason doubt your ability, um, or the authenticity of the knife for some whatever reason. Well, yeah, because it was a big I've... thing that went around for a while on the on the bladesmithing forums on the American Bladesmith Society uh, forums, which was like, what about a smith that could go through their entire journeyman smith and master smith ratings only doing stock removal? because the blades all look very clean right especially in the journeyman smith section you could make all of those blades without picking up a hammer um mm -hmm. and so like the concern was like you know how do we know that they're actually bladesmiths so that was a, it was an interesting argument that was brought up yeah yeah it is i i agree one of the trends has become more about finishing 
you know, the whole, the, the whole idea of the clean fit finish knife. Hey, that's cool. But, um, there's a, okay. One of the truths that I've seen over, and I've been doing this for 35,000 hours of time and over 20 years or more. Um, most of the bladesmiths who come in my shop, even the ones with a lot of experience are not very good at forging. Some of them are really good at forging. And one of the things that I, the correlation is this, some people don't spend much time, you know, they don't make that many knives. Okay. I understand that. Um, so I'm forging all the time. We have my, my son is in there. My daughter's in there. We have people come from all over the place. And it's always fun when you have another Smith, like me and my friend, Bert, like we, you know, we'll have fun. We'll forge, we'll have a battle or whatever we do, or have this other guy, Andy Wozniak, Colony Nice. He's a great bladesmith. Um, my son Tristan can forge stuff right in exactly the shapes and the bevels that he wants. Those are things I love to see. Mm. Uh, when I watch someone talking about it and they go, you got to forge it to the thickness of a dime, but then they're only forging the last, you know, the a quarter inch, the a quarter of the blade thickness mm-hmm. to a, the thickness of a dime. I'm like, what does that matter? What does that mean? You know, it doesn't really matter to me. You're still doing all this grinding, all this grinding. Mm. Um, I got in a lot of trouble one time. I said this thing about stainless steel that maybe you guys know. So when they make steel, whatever kind it is, S35 VN, doesn't matter, carbon stainless, they make it in ingots. And then they take that ingot to uh, a mill and the mill rolls it into the dimension. And that process of rolling it is a forging process. Yep. So all the steel that we're using is already forged anyway, unless you're mm-hmm. making dirt steel, you know, Tamahagani or crucible steel or all mm. these different things. So the, the, the art of it is always the forging part. So in my opinion, become very deft at forging, become really, really good. So you can forge things exactly where you want them to go. You become, you literally become a master with that hammer and manipulating the steel um, and and then also becoming a master at finishing stuff and fitting stuff because that's the other end of it that we always see is the, the finishing and fitting really cool okay mm-hmm. uh, a machinist can do that a machinist with no knife making skill can do those things too yeah it's just it's metal finishing and metal fitting and if we i think if we're putting all the emphasis on that always then those discussions will always arise up say well how would someone know that they that they actually even forge these things. We always like to say, you know, when you can put a roller bearing in front of a stock removalist and say, here, grind a knife out of that. And they'll only be able to make a very small knife, but a blacksmith yeah. can, or, or a bladesmith can forge that out into a K bar, you know, That's easy. Right. It's magic. It makes you, it makes you a better scrap rat too. And when you, when you're first getting started, you're going to be using all kind of leaf springs and roller bearings and coil springs and things. You got to get that hammer technique down. Yeah, I think it's, it makes it more fun to me. You know, people ask why forge. I'm like, because it, it exemplifies my art. It's the way I express the art of it. You know, I love that part the most. So mostly what I make now are forged to finish pieces. And somebody asked me the other day, it's like, oh, I'd like to see you go back and do one of them really nice hand rub finished carbon steel blades. I'm like, so it can rust as soon as I look at it. Like, <laughs> I'll make it out of Damascus or something. I like to make them out of Damascus because, when they patina, they just look better. But mm. doing a carbon steel, do a carbon steel, hamon, da 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 I was like, 
you got to be really, uh, you got to be accredited to be able to take care of that blade. Okay. <laughs> I'll make it, but I need to, you need a training process to be able to maintain it. You know? One of the, like, um, oh, oh, you can go for it, Sam. No, I was going to say, um, one, I think one of my favorite videos that I saw from you, uh, not recently, but you know, a while back was, uh, using a railroad spring clip to forge like a Wakazashi kind of, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's some tough steel in there. <laughs> Post-apocalyptic thing. I loved it. <clears throat> yeah. I had the guys, I had them laying around my shop and they went and picked them out. So I took the rustier one, the one that had more pitting in it. Yeah. Because in my mind, I'm like that one, because in America, they made them out of uh, 1084 up until about 2001. And then they, mm. they started making them out of 1060. And the only way I can imagine to tell is that one would be crustier than the other one. And then you start feeling it under the hammer. And then once it's hardened, I'm like, oh, okay, well, it that one kind of fully hardened. So it must have been 1084, which worked out awesome. Nice. Really? I didn't know you could find 1084 in the wild like that. In the wild. Just yeah. go harvest yeah. it. Harvest it, pull it out of the ground. <laughs> yeah. With an angry What's train it? conductor yelling at you. <laughs> oh man, there's a guy from Narrero that just showed me a bunch of pictures of stuff. He goes, Which one of these do you like to use? I was like, you know, all those spring clips, I've seen them in piles. Yeah. And the and the truth is, is we're all we we we're scrappers and I'm a I'll hoard metal like that. If I can get that, I'm gonna be like a dragon sitting on a pile of gold, you know? Yeah. I was like, well, I got all the steel we need. We had uh, a friend of mine works at the post office. I live quite rural and there's um, one shop for miles and it's the post office and general store and bank and everything. And the guy that runs it is my mate, Adam. And he had a guy that works for all the, for the railroad come in and um, he was just chatting with him and he'd been up to my forge recently and he'd been forging. So he said, oh, I was doing some forging on the weekend. He goes, oh, do you want railroad spikes? And he goes, yeah, I'll grab some railroad spikes, sure. And he said, yeah, yeah, when we're, we have to swap them out all the time. So when we pull them up, we fill 40-gallon drums with them and then just bury them under the bluestone and move on. <laughs> so we, I, I can get you some rail spikes. And, and Adam's like, yeah, that's great. And he messaged me and he's like, hey, I've, I've got you some rail spikes. And I'm thinking, cool. This guy turns up with about 200 kilograms of rail spikes and there's just i've in my shed i've just got tubs and tubs of them I, more than i could possibly use i'm giving them to people i'm giving them box loads at a time and i've still got more than i can and then the guy turned up again and he had rail clips and he had tie clips and it's just oh it's incredible how much they go through on a month-to-month basis so just get in friendly yeah. with somebody who works on the rail lines and they, they have to replace this stuff on on intervals yeah, and they can't. They're not allowed to scrap it. The scrap yards are not allowed yeah. to take it for some reason. Those mm-hmm. clips are really. I mean, that's good steel. You know, that's a funny thing about. You could take any of those steels, and do a really good heat treat on them, and have an awesome knife. Mm-hmm. Or you could take the steel of the month, the popular steel, whatever they're talking about now, Magna Cut or whatever, and and heat treat it yourself, <laughs> and do a real mediocre half-ass heat treat. And I was like, this is Magna Cut. Oh, cool. That's It's cutting me already. I didn't even <laughs> use it yet. It's already cutting stuff. I'm Sam and I actually of the month, you know? uh, both worked on a, a video that with actually with Jay Nielsen and Niels Vandenberg and Kyle Royer joined in as well because we had we saw this phenomenon over and over again in forums and on social media and that where a beginner would be really proud that they've found a, a farrier's rasp or a rail spike or something like that and they wanted to forge with it. And people would always 
jump down their throat saying, just buy, you know, bars of virgin steel and, and work with something you know what it is so you can do the heat treat right, blah, blah, blah. And really, when you're starting out, you should play with scrap. You really should. So we did this video yeah. where we went in huge detail with the help of these other guys to show just what you can do with um, with even unknown steels if you just play with it and experiment with it a little bit and um, and compared it. We did the same thing. Like you know, what if you just stuck a bar of VG10 non magnetic into a bucket of water? It may as well be a bar of mild steel <laughs> at the end of it <laughs> with a lot of cracks in it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, but it it's it's, it's really true though. I mean, scrap can be can be great if you know what you're doing. You just learn the why of it and and learn about it. It's yeah. fun to learn all that stuff. There's so much to learn. Yeah, you can look it up like um, disc, like the old plow discs. I don't mm-hmm. know if you like harrowing so discs. A lot of those are made out of 1084. You know, that was a very common steel for years. And when you mix that old school 1084 in the Damascus back in the days when we could buy it, like you'd etch it to be like black and silver, like, whoa, mm-hmm. has, it had the perfect manganese content. Um, so, you know, manganese in steel will is make what it makes retain. it black. Yeah, it makes it, but it'll retain austenite if you have too much and it'll cause it to do all kind of warpy weird stuff mm-hmm. because it's like not going into solution properly. But that, that old school 1084 was, it was perfect. So down the hill from me, this property that I'm trying to purchase, there's there's like four or five plows, and they have the discs all on them. I'm like, I kind of want to cut them up, <laughs> mix them with saw blades, and just make scrap knives. You know, like I want to put a primitive forge up on my mountain, make charcoal, and show yep. people like, just like, okay, you don't need any of these things. Just let me show you this, and just take this rusty crap and then make. And then for those knives, those will not be blacksmith finish knives. Those will be. The, the cruddier the, the material is, the more polished I want to take it to. You know <laughs> new I mean? life. Yeah, Breathing new, new life yeah. into it. Yeah. <laughs> I will I will buy as much steel as I'll have money, you know. If I mm-hmm. like Aldo the steel baron, mm-hmm. he, he's driving the van through here. He's like, Jason, I want to stop by and see you and your family. You know, if you ever talk to him, that's how I talk. Exactly. <laughs> And uh, so I just started, I was like, give me all that ADCRV2 you got. I'll just take it all. Mm-hmm. Give me everything on a van. This too? Yeah, give me that. I'll take it. I want all of it because <laughs> for me, that has become like a perfect steel. And I don't know if guys ever use it, but it has vanadium in it. Yeah. It doesn't have enough vanadium to get vanadium carbides like W2 does, but it's it's wear resistant. It's, it, you can make it zero. You can grind it to zero and not even temper it. And it'll flex like a razor blade. It's awesome steel. Yeah, yeah Koi um, loves it. It was yeah. because it was actually because of you and a, a bunch of videos that I'd watched of you working with ADCR V2 that eventually convinced me that I should try it. And uh, the first thing I did with it was make make a um, cutlass blade for my HEMA um, HEMA group. And I have beat the crap out of that thing, and it hasn't even got a dent in it. <laughs> and I was just kind of like, "This thing's amazing." And so, yeah, well, now I'm I'm a true convert. <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty much 1084 wearing a vanadium vest, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's it's, right. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, I make it, Damascus with it. I use that in uh, 15 and 20 to make mm-hmm. Damascus. And uh, you, if you, it'll get dark if you make enough layers. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I've I've come up with interesting ways to get the steel to turn dark. So we've um, talked about some interesting techniques here and and, and 
the, the theory behind always, you know, trying to increase your your knowledge and your range of skills. What what's the next technique that you're actually working on over there? What's the next thing you want to get mm. into? Explode into? Folders. Oh yeah, I know where yeah, you can find a I'm... course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, and funny you should mention. Um, Bruce Barnett, because he, oh God, he makes some beautiful slip joint folders. I saw the one that you were working on recently uh, on your Instagram. Yeah, me and my wife went and hung out with uh, Tobin Hill, who's with the slip joint cartel out of Texas. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm going to show you her knife because I think her knife is better than mine. But this is this oh, is hers. That. Very nice. And she did like this. It's kind of, I mean, it's, it's really beautiful. It's really nice. This is a single blade trapper. Another thing I found out, these knives are, these designs are like 400 years old and some yep. of them go all the way back to Rome. I didn't even know, you know, mm-hmm. all the way back to, you know, 2000 years ago. But yeah. Hers has got enough, like mine doesn't have this much tension. It's like, she's got the perfect amount of tension on it. So it snaps, mm-hmm. it snaps, you know, it's, it's really nice, but she made that one. That's her first knife. Very nice. That's the first knife she ever for made. a first that's, knife. That's insane. <laughs> that's a killer knife. Perfect. Yeah, but I like I like that knife a lot. That's a knife. Um, I made mine, and I had a, a a collector. He's a friend of mine. He's like, I'll give you four thousand dollars for that knife, and I'm like, <laughs> no man. I was like, if it's worth that much, I'm gonna keep it, you know, because I can't buy one. He goes, I'll give you nine thousand dollars for it. Like, I called Tobin. I said, like, Hey, Tobin. Bill wants to give me nine thousand dollars for this, and he goes, "Well, you could take it, and then we could come down here and we can have a party. We'll have a good time, and we'll make another night." <laughs> like, yeah, but I never get that one back. I never get that one back. He's like, "I make him give it to me when he dies. He wouldn't do it. He'd sell it. He'd sell it." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he's just pulling my leg or what, you know. But I'm like, well, I could, it's a fun story. But I'm it is a good story. Night, but, yeah. So, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I'd be. I I can't do it. I, I when I got into knife, making knives regularly and, and switched to full time, every so often a knife would come up and I'd be making it. I'd be getting close to the finish and I'm thinking I might want to keep this knife. I don't want to sell this knife. And then I think I've got to pay bills. I need. I need to. Eat, I need to eat this week. I, I need to sell this knife. I can't. If I if I keep one, it's going to justify keeping the next one, and then that's going to justify keeping. And then I'm going to have a collection, and then I'll be able to add things to the collection. So I just can't do it. I can't hold yeah. on to them. <laughs> there's a there's a place I didn't, and uh, this is interesting to bring that up because for me, knife making has been a literal full time occupation since 2001, and uh, my my wife pushed me, helped me, organized me all the time. My my grandma funded me to get in, you know, to get going. You know, I was working at a tire company. I was doing tires and brakes and I, I mean, it was, we had a great time. We had a crew and it was a lot of fun, but it was really devastating on your body. You know, working, we were working out in the rain. We refused to wear long pants. We'd only wear shorts. We changed people's tires in the rain. We'd wrote, you know, all the crazy stuff. And uh, she's like, one day she's like, do you want to do this the rest of your life? And I was like, no, I want to make knives. <laughs> so she, my grandma kind of funded me for, uh, she, she got me like she purchased the first press I bought and the, and just got me in a financial place where I could, it wasn't that much money really, but it was what I needed to, to make that leap into it. Mm. And then I was, I got hired as a blacksmith at this old, um, uh, right. It was the oldest landscape gardens in America, North America. 
-hmm. I think it's stupid when they say that. It's like there's plenty of landscape gardens down in South America that are thousands of years old, probably here too. Mm -hmm. I, I got to quit saying that because I don't, I don't believe that history, but <laughs> Middleton Place, if you've seen The Patriot or any of these movies or revolutionary war so they usually will shoot scenes from there but i was the blacksmith there and i would make mostly knives but i would do whatever they they need to make a hinge or something else i would do stuff but it's so funny because they were like oh you're the guy that makes horseshoes i'm like they didn't <laughs> shot horses here you know, they didn't really shoot every horse did not get shot in those days because the ground where we live was soft anyway but uh -huh. so i did that for two years and then i had enough orders for knives and i was already I had my own style, you know, back in 2001. I had, you know, boom, I just came up like, I was like, ooh, I like that line. I like this curve. So it was pretty quick for me. And then I got a, a gig making knife, hunting knives for a magazine called Sporting Classics, which is kind of a really shiny, beautiful hunting outdoor magazine. I made almost 150 knives the same night over and over and over and over. <laughs> and that really made me get good at mm. good way to build repetition. Repeti uh, repetition will do that. Yeah. I don't know how I got off on that. I just went off on, I squirreled on you, I guess. So. <laughs> That's all right. I don't know what we, you guys, what do y'all call it there when you get like shiny thing? <laughs> ADHD. <laughs> yeah. Squirrel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, it, it's, it's one of those things you, you've, you've got to sort of settle into a rhythm if you're doing it full time. I've, I've been only doing it full time for three years. Um, and my uh, wife actually huge supporter of me when I first started she was still working a normal job um, and she left hers and moved to doing full-time craft work alongside me um, but she recently got bitten by the knife making bug she's like you know what you've been doing this for years now I want to give it a try and she came out about seven months ago made her first knife got hooked and now we're both making knives full-time and oh, it's nice. It's one of those things that because you can dive into it as much as you want, you could double in skill every month for the rest of your life and be on your deathbed with still more that you could learn. I think it, it's like that. It's just a you, you, once yeah. you get bitten by that bug and you realize the scope of what knife making is, you, it, it doesn't let you go. Yeah. That, my son and his wife both make knives. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and they're good at. It. I like that level up feeling. That thing when you was like, I just figured out something. Yeah, I want to tell somebody. <laughs> better not tell them. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna tell anybody. You know, that's funny. It's it's oh, it's, it's it's great that your family is actually all in it like that and yeah. expanding out to to involve more knife making. It's just sort of a family built on knives. Yeah, my daughter got real interested when. Um, so I've been. I, I don't know if you know the DeRosiers or you ever had yeah, yeah, we do. So I'm their Yenta, you know, I'm their matchmaker. <laughs> I've introduced them. And Adam, when he first started making knives, he lived with us for like on and off for about a year. And um, so it's an interesting dynamic how those, those families, they both make knives, you know. And um, my daughter was playing around with They both had played around with it since they were about eight. But then Haley and Adam came and visited us in Tennessee, and then Tiger Lily was just all in at that point. She's like, boom, I'm making knives. And she's been doing it She only integrals. She's like, I don't make those flat mm. knives. Those are boring. <laughs> I'm not making those. So she only makes integrals, and she does it. She'll finish a, a knife when she's on. She'll finish one every day. She'll forge a bunch, and then she'll finish one. And that's a good little model for her. 
especially because she doesn't have to own the shop. Okay. <laughs> yeah. A little bit yeah. of leverage for her. Good for her. You know. <laughs> like, I always say, when I started, I just had a hammer with a rope with a trampoline spring on Back it when I wanted to make day. Damascus. <laughs> yeah. Like I remember he listened to uh, Steve Filichetti used to I met him one time. He's like, I just use a big hammer. And I'm like, You are kidding me? <laughs> And I was like, well, the arm looks like you just have a big hammer. But he was doing all that mosaic stuff. And so I took a, a rope with a trampoline spring, and that's how I'd make Damascus. But I didn't make mosaics until like 2007 or something. You know? But I think it's funny. Everyone's has these different things, you know. So how did you get into making swords? What was your – the reasoning? Well, when I when I first got into knife making, like I – I started out wanting to make swords because I was, you know, obsessed with, you know, the old knights and, you know, the period of, you know, between the, the late middle ages and, and the Napoleonic era. Um, and then I kind of just got fell ahead first into knife making for a while, trying to level up my fit and finish and my forging and stuff like that to get two swords. Uh, and it took me like nine years to get to a point where I was kind of like, Hey, I think I can give it a shot now. Um, but yeah, the, the big thing for me was wanting to create functional pieces over like wall hangers. Cause like so many people I know have made quote unquote swords, you know, out of bars of mild steel with an angle grinder. Uh, <laughs> but I wanted to make functional pieces and, yeah. um, originally Game I had a great really platform. Yeah. Originally I hadn't really set out to make, uh, sparring weapons, like actual uh, functional sparring weapons. But when I started, uh, learning and then teaching, um, Cutlass and Sabre, uh, in HEMA, I decided that, you know, why not make the blades that I use <laughs> because, you know, I have the ability to, yeah. um, but yeah, like for me, it's, it's just always been an obsession with, with the, the aesthetic of the sword, especially European style swords. Um, yeah. Kevin Cashin was a huge inspiration for me in that, like the rapiers and stuff like that, that he makes are absolutely insane. And yeah, I hope really to make cool. something like that one day. <laughs> Every time you pick one of them up, I always feel like it, I pick one of his swords. I'm like, I want to poke somebody with this. <laughs> Is that like, quote thing, from like, uh, a, a song of ice and fire? <laughs> you, every, there's a beast that lives in every animal and it stirs when you put a sword in his hand. <laughs> yeah, it. man um vince evans he'll he'll do these like uh you know these northern european like viking swords you know mm -hmm. i don't know what else we'd call them but every time i was like let me pick that up and he's <laughs> like he could see that thing in my eye he's like put it back down now he's like, it wants to eat this thing wants to eat something you know and that's what's a wild thing when you pick up a real sword it's just like oh man this is cool or maybe I there's something is that. something in your surname then maybe it's a calling to a past life Man, I, you know what I'm fascinated. Swords right now, I'm fascinated with are the the old Polish hussars. Like the, mm -hmm. you know, that's how the, we have a, the U.S. cavalry. We have a cavalry because of the hussars. Yep. They had like that killage. That's a cool the sword. Man. Killage and, yeah. I, I've I been, saw I've, one in a museum. It was like 43 inches long. <laughs> it was just it had fullers and fullers, and I was like, man, that was so cool. It was a cool yeah. blade. And you think of the time that they were made and you think of the techniques and the tools that they would have had and you look at some of that work and you think, oh, damn, somebody was passionate about that project. Oh, yeah. yeah I actually did a lot of research on those recently. Um, one of my good friends and one of my customers is Armenian and he actually like uh, commissioned an Armenian Kilich hilt 
for a uh, a blade that he had bought for Hema, and so I had to do a lot of research and stuff like that. And it is a fantastically awesome way to research, especially because um, the way that the saber in general developed from that area through Europe to what we then came to know as a saber in like the Napoleonic period in the late 1800s. Um, you know, saber being one of my favorite forms of swordsmanship. So, uh, <laughs> just like have swords laying around me everywhere at the moment. <laughs> He's just yeah, in a room full of swords. <laughs> so, yeah, that's cool. But um, yeah. yeah, no. On on the note of like you know learning new things and stuff like that, do you have like a project in mind that you want to work on? Is there like a dream project you have? Uh, yeah, I, so I'm interested. The, the thing with swords, I'm always interested in them. It's just the time thing. And when mm. I do one, um, so I'll tell you a story you may not know. But um, so Fours and Fire, I did the first episode ever and competed in it. Mm-hmm. And I made a, a mains pattern gladius. The challenge was a gladius. And the guy who was against me, he just thought they were, you know, um, movies from the 60s so they looked like picket <laughs> fences he had no idea that they had all these different types of swords so I spent about 10 hours trying to recreate the size of the sword based on the width drawing mm-hmm. and then after I had done the whole thing I messaged Peter Johnson I was like hey man you know you had this mains pattern that you did he goes oh I could have just seen you the dimensions for it and, it was <laughs> and that was really like right on the money I was like it had a 22 inch blade and it was like so those are really fascinating to me because they're not even from Italy. They're from, mm-hmm. you know, they're from like Spain or from yep. somewhere else or Germany. Garbage. I always think that's so crazy. These, these old, these ancient Celtic swords, you mm-hmm. know, and how it ends up being there. But I, I'm a, when you make stuff like that and you start looking at history, I don't ever really believe the narrative, you know, like <laughs> what I'm told. I'm like, something else is totally going on because really only rich people had swords <laughs> and everybody might've had a stick with a knife on the end of it or a dagger or something pokey, but like only really wealthy people had a sword. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. And not every culture, but it's, it's one of the cool thing things about by. the craft because when you, when you hold that thing, you're sort of connected to a bit of history, especially if you've forged it out. Um, you, you get that sense of reality that you can't get from a book. Yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff too. It's like um, those. So my, you asked me a question. I keep squirreling <laughs> on you. So I want to make a, a. I almost don't want to say what it is because then somebody else is going to make it. Some other <laughs> dork is going to watch this and be like, "Well, I actually came up with this idea." <laughs> it's not. It's been done, but I want to do an integral version of this thing I, i've made some like the Iqua asega you know the, the yep. shaka zulu Iqua. sword you know the zulu. so i want to make an integral one i've actually got it going right now and i just think it'd be kind of fun but i haven't figured out how to it, it to me it still has to be a weapon it still needs to be i don't want it to be a clunker or some fantasy looking thing i want it to look like it's ancient but um, not too outrageous. You know, mm. I, I'm a, I'm not a fan of the, I'm not also not a fan of over everything. Like if I do Damascus, I don't like crazy wood. I like it, the craziest yeah. wood I'll use is be like that, that, um, uh, Koa or that Tasmanian yep, curly yep. Blackwood wood. Sort of thing. Yeah. Blackwood. Yeah. I got a, actually, I bought the last bit of that. I bought, I bought from Bruce Barnett. Cause he's like, 
He's not. He said, "I'm not making big knives anymore. I don't need that stuff." Yeah. Yeah, you need, you need like to talk to Ryan things. at Otway Fiddleback. He he has some of the, just the nicest pieces of that that fiddle, beautiful tight lined Fiddleback Australian woods. Oh, always beautifully pretty, stabilized. Yeah, yeah. Re, he knows his stuff. I like that. But I, I agree I like with you. When when you've got a busy blade, you need a clean <coughs> handle. You can't have all busy all over. It's just it's too yeah. much going on. I remember. Um, I, this, I'll tell you, uh, uh, like a home run. They play baseball in Australia, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes. <laughs> I mean, so that I crack of the bat where you hit a home run. I'm not a I'm not a ball sports fan. You know, that's not my thing. But uh, I was watching this trend where all the master bladesmiths were doing like mosaic, mm-hmm. big plate guards and ferrules engraved in gold and then purple, blue, green, mastodon, ivory, whatever, whatever it was, and it was like. The knife shape itself was kind of mm. yuck, <laughs> but the materials were like amazing, except for it was like a, there was a piano player named Liberace and it reminded me mm. of that style. I'm like, it's overdone. I'm like, well, I'm getting 5,000 bucks for that. And I was like, I want to make one that's just black with black micarta <laughs> and get 5,000 bucks for it. <laughs> so I started exploring this thing and I made a, um, I made a the kukri. I didn't, so it was an accident that I started putting fullers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was also an accident that I made things black. So mm-hmm. that was just like, I was tired of those finishes. And when I, I did one one day, I did, I did this kukri and I had the fuller in it and I made it black. And I was like, this is a home run. And about that time there was a song. It was the RZA in uh, black keys, the baddest man alive. I could hear mm-hmm. that song playing like the intro. Bing, bing. I was like, Oh, I, I nailed it. Like knocked it out of the park. <laughs> I've been doing cookeries on and off for years, but like I didn't like that, that totally blacked out one was about 2012 or 11, maybe 2010, I guess. But I was like, man, that was cool. And then I would do subhill fighters and I'd make black, black guard, black micarta. And I, <laughs> I let one go bidding and it just bid up. It went to, it went to like, 5,000 bucks. I'm like, okay, highest bidder. I'm not, I'm out of, it's out of my control. You guys do whatever you want. Yeah. So that was fun. And I felt, I was like, I sold a knife that was carbon steel in my carta. And it was, a, to me, it was about this, the design and the style and the whole dynamic of it. Like the most important parts of the knife, not the, not the fluff, you know? Yeah. But yeah. I, yeah. I do prefer to make things out of Damascus, really. If I'm going to make a finished knife, mm-hmm. I'd rather make it out of Damascus than carbon steel. It's just, it's worth the work. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I've always been uh, a little bit of more of a proponent of telling people before you start going for Damascus and, you know, like engraving and your your super expensive stabilized materials get your shapes down, like get your get the function and the aesthetic of the overall blade done and the handle make it comfortable make it all of that kind of stuff then spritz it up like instead of i see so many new bladesmiths getting into it and buying bars of damascus from places like you know koi baker or baker 400 tool and stuff and slapping some kiranite crap handle (laughs) on it and and trying to sell it for like you know 600 bucks where it it just it is completely useless it's just expensive materials but the the blade itself is is not great i see you gotta you gotta be able to take it into a dark room and hold it up to the window and see the silhouette of it and it's got to be gorgeous if it's a gorgeous silhouette that makes you just want to hold that knife you're on a good start you're on a good start you can't see the handle materials you can't see what the blade steel looks like you just see that silhouette and get it down and get it get it lovely 
Yeah, it's like I, I think it's kind of funny. We should do a thing sometimes. Like, okay, draw your your um your typical amateur knife designer knife. You know, it's like it's mm-hmm. always the same thing. It's always the same thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. It, it kind of cracks me up. There's a guy I like him, but like they have a company, and they, you know, they're I can look at the designs and I'm like, mm-hmm. these are idealistic knife designs. <laughs> So like I got a place for my finger and this finger and then this. In case you want to get double handed on, you can choke up and have oh, two handed go, on your hunter. Go so damn you finger dimples all chopper. the way down the handle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <I'm> like, <laughs> this is so like your handle's so poorly designed. You can put your finger not only one place on the blade, but two. There's two finger groups <laughs> in the blade. Actually, I remember one time a like, guy wanted this. This I, for at one time there was a couple of Russian guys. They were wanting knives. They they were in America, and I don't know how they contacted me through Adam some kind of way because he wasn't going to do the knife for him. Mm-hmm. So they wanted me to make a six-inch bladed knife that could chop and hammer and pry, <laughs> but it had to be under a certain weight. Dire- I was like, "No, what is this?" <laughs> Get they your were tools. Se- <laughs> they were secretly Spetsnaz going on a secret mission. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> You wouldn't have known it if they were. That's the funny part. Yeah, what, what, they want, what they really wanted was a knife and a claw hammer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you guys, do you have do y'all like zombie shows like zombie? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. things? I mean, there's yeah, one um, called Walking Dead, but you know, no one yeah. on that whole show has a framing hammer. <laughs> Why don't you have a framing? Why does there somebody on the show? Good S wing hammer. hammer just <laughs> crack skulls. So I mean, do it on a job site by accident. I mean, <laughs> made out of butter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like that. How did you become the king of the zombie apocalypse world? Oh, a hammer. I was, I was a framer. <laughs> well, you were knifing everybody. I got a hammer. I just. <laughs> Yeah, Larry Horn would just be the last person to survive. Survive just with <laughs> his tool belt hanging off him. <laughs> Pretty funny, man. Yeah, that's funny stuff. Him, him oh, it's Ben <laughs> Yeah, that's right, Tim. You know, he goes up against a hundred zombies at once. I don't think so, Tim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I like stuff like that. I always think it's funny the things. Um, I used to fly to shows all over the place. I don't remember where I was going. It might have been the first time I was going to Alaska. I was in SeaTac. That's the airport in Seattle, Washington. And in the gift store, you know, Seattle was known for all this glass blowing and stuff. There's a, a carving set. So it's a big, long carving knife and a big carving fork. And it was in the gift shop inside the airport. Mm. I was like, why don't I buy this and just take it on the airplane with me? Like, I should have just bought it. Uh-huh. It was a little, it was like, I didn't really, I was like, I don't know why I didn't. This was before, you know, phones didn't have cameras on them all back in those days. <laughs> it was in the airport. I kind of wanted it. I should have bought it. But it's so easy for me to see weapons and everything. <laughs> so I think the whole idea of you can't bring that in here or this in here. I was like, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. I don't, what about that big glass jar full of water? I mean, I <laughs> busted you in the head with that. That would knock you out cold. You know, was what like, was that guy a while back? Um, actually, went into behind security in the, the the lounge, and he went to all the different stores, and he bought like a a newspaper and a laptop battery and all these things, and he built a, a shotgun that can fire once. <laughs> um, and he did it with stuff you can buy in the lounge, and then showed the airport what he did so that they could you know up their security and they they sued him for it yep 
It was it was interesting on his part, but he shouldn't have showed them. Any. He shouldn't have shown them. Uh, that's remember the trouble. authorities. Remember, uh-huh. that sounds like Philip George Lutie. Orwell wrote. If someone is enough, if they're keen enough, you can kill somebody with a thermos. You can kill yeah. somebody with a chair if you're keen enough. Yeah, reminds me of uh, Philip Lutie, who developed the Lutie submachine gun. He he had like when Britain came out with its big gun laws and stuff. He um they he, he was like. I reckon I can still build a decent gun with nothing but like general basic shop tools. And so he <laughs> went about making this sheet metal, like just bent in a vice and pop riveted together nine millimeter submachine gun. And he made the whole thing from scratch in his in his garage with nothing and then walked into a police station with it. <laughs> he ended up getting like, hey, 10 fellas. Years. he ended up getting 10 years behind bars or something like that because, <laughs> but you know, it was just, it, the whole point was to prove that, you know, even if you take guns off the street, you can still make them in your shed with nothing. Never prove authority figures wrong. <laughs> oh, well, never so never th- wave it in their faces because they don't like that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. George Orwell, government control is a boot stomping on your face forever. Mm-hmm. It doesn't you, matter what kind of government it is. Or you don't care if it's the left or the right one when it's stomping on your neck. <laughs> no, uh, they're it. all going to do it. They, they do it here. They do it. I mean, they do it in every country. It doesn't matter oh. what country you're in. They're going to do they it. They sure do it here. We got some of the worst knife laws on the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, crazy. I'm amazed that Sam and I are still in business, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Not wrong. It's always weird here. In, yeah. in Tennessee, where I live, we have a gun store about every five miles, <laughs> yep. and it's kind of cool. Like, I, I mean, I'm I'm fond of weapons and firearms and stuff like that. But I actually had you know, a um a, a Coy Baker commissioned a knife from me, a, an automatic, a switchblade, and um I I was making it. I said, look, I'm going to have to make it on the on the down low here because we cannot have them here. Is it going to be okay where you are? And he's like, dude, I live in Tennessee. Just send it over. It'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. When you moved here, they're like, hey, do you have any firearms? I was like, oh no. Okay. Well, we're gonna give to, we're gonna have to give you some because you can't. Live here. <laughs> You're gonna have a shotgun, a rifle, and a pistol. Okay. Here's your bandolier. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny um, that like crime here is usually only people who like really know each other, like family mm-hmm. over some kind of drug altercation yeah, or something like that. Domestics people and stuff. Who don't know you, they're not going to mess with you here. Oh, dissuade somebody from trying to rob a house if there's a good chance that there's you know a shotgun packing granny in the lounge room watching her programs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no. Don't y'all interrupt my stories. (laughs) Hey, that's a good accent. (laughs) It is funny accent. So where you you guys both have different accent. I I mean, Mm. I can tell. I guess you could tell, Mm. too. When I grew up, it was like that. You could be in this little town and 10 miles away. These people have a different accent. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the other one going closer and closer to the coast. Then the language completely changes. Yeah. So I always, I always like that i just find that pretty interesting you know yeah we're on totally different sides of the country we're we're thousands of kilometers away and different from each other. and different islands it's funny yeah. the the tasmanians sound like the the sort of darrows that um, hang around at the train station on the mainland it, it's funny <laughs> even even the most well-educated well-to-do tasmanians just sound like absolute australian backwater hicks <laughs> <laughs> That's it. 
There's a, a Tennessee accent. It sounds like a guitar. These people are talking. Yeah. Oh, sound like a bling 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 bling. It's like it's like ding 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 ding. It's like a banjo, you know. I'm like weird. We got that southern twang. I, I spent a couple of weeks in Las Vegas with a couple of Texan boys and an Arkansas boy. And, um, oh, God, the accents that we heard, because we're in Vegas, you know, there's people from everywhere. But I was the only Australian there, and everybody wanted to hear the accent. It's just strangers coming up to me wanting to talk because they'd hear me because it's not an accent that you really miss and you're walking down a mall. <laughs> and so they'd hear, oh, my God, are you from Australia? <laughs> yeah, yeah, how's it going? <laughs> G'day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's funny. Always fun. So, so are you on the island? Are you on like the south, the if you, southern if you, or northern? If you get mainland Australia on the uh, east coast, all the way down the bottom offshore, there's an island um, called Tasmania. It's about the size. Oh, of, I know where that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Did, I didn't hear you say Tasmania. I know where that is. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I, I live on Tasmania. I was born here. I lived on the mainland for a while, but now I've moved back. Um, it's, Do- it's always been my home. Do you have jade there? You ever go looking for jade? Like, is it- we have a lot of different gemstones that just naturally form here, um, including gold deposits, but they're all inside quartz. We've got um, some uh, tin mines here that because uh, tin's actually really rare if you're into your home smelting. We've got lots of tin mines. We've got um, fossils everywhere because the island used to be under the, under the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, but about three quarters of the island is national park. So you're not supposed to go fossicking around, but people do, but they, because of that, they keep their hotspots very, very secret. And so to try and find out where all these things are is very difficult. Oh, wow. Yeah. I like, I have a, on my mountain where I, where I grew up, there was no rocks except for there were marine fossils. Mm-hmm. So we find megalodon teeth in a ditch. Behind the house. So I had the richest marine fossils anywhere in America. So you find a lot of megalodon teeth in the rivers, in the swamp. And my dad worked in a cement plant. So they had a quarry and I'd go down in the quarry and I'd look for teeth, you know, and I found shark teeth all the time there, but it, it's only about 40 miles inland from the coast, but mm-hmm. it's the richest marine fossil deposit in, in the country really. But yeah. here, there's all these rocks. It's kind of funny. I'm I can spot petrified wood pretty easy. So I'm up on this mountain called Roan Mountain. I don't know. I have a oh here it is. So I found this. This is bark. I know it's kind of weird, but um, I found the bark, and then I kept looking around, and there's these pile of rocks, and I'm like, it looks like a tree someone cut up. And then I start looking at it. And it's like there's wood grain, in grain, and then long grain. I'm like. That's a fossilized tree <laughs> and they don't have it marked or anything. They don't even know, but it's like one person comes in and says, Oh, that's just a rock. And then another, I know what I'm looking at. So I was like, that's petrified wood. And one person will say, well, that's millions and millions of years old. And I'm like, maybe it's just a couple thousand years old. You can't, they don't carbon date rocks. I mean, they just don't work. It don't work that way. You can't, and it's not accurate anyway. So, it's really fascinating to me to discover places and see them just the way I see them. And it's my opinion, it's my hypotheses, but as a, you know, as we're all somewhat of, you know, we're technicians and being a bladesmith, you have to be a chemist and a technician and a machinist and 
you know, you have to be an amateur scientist and you have to apply these scientific principles when you're mm-hmm. dealing with knife making, because knife making is just problem solving all the time. Mm-hmm. And so when I see that stuff, I'm like, wow, that's cool. So I found a big piece of petrified wood up on my hill. It's like a rotten, full of holes and stuff. And it's got wood grain. I'm like, that's wood too. It's kind of wild. Are we going to see it as a, uh, like an accent piece on a knife handle at some point? (laughs) That'd be cool. No, it's not that kind of, it's just the stone isn't that great. It's like (laughs) chalky, weird Uh, stuff. And um, I do have some jade that Schwarzer gave. Steve Schwarzer gave me this Burmese jade. Mm-hmm. That came from um, Buster Warinsky. And uh, I had a friend of mine from Taiwan here, and he's looking at that jade, and he's like, you know what kind of jade this is? I'm like, yeah, it's from Burma. He goes, this is really expensive. You hold <laughs> it up to the light, and you can see through it, and it's green. But I want to do like a, an inner frame, something crazy, but like a dagger, I don't know, something all steel, but I want to put that jade in there. So when you hold it up, you can see through it. Do you have any sort of lapidary tools to to work it? No, I have to get them. I don't know what I'm doing. I'll just do it. Sometimes (laughs) just playing around is half the fun most of the time. Yeah, now the sun's coming up. Yeah, we should should wrap it up anyway. I'm I'm sure our um, our listeners are probably wondering why we haven't. (laughs) <laughs> but, we have uh, the same sun that you guys have. Yeah, can you no, see that one? You have you have an imperial sun. We have a metric sun. <laughs> oh, that's right. I, I thought it was. I was I was thinking that was a you know regular old yeah, standard. It's, it's been great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, man. We we normally have um, listener emails and things that we go through, but we figured we've we've got quite a lot of them. So uh, for those listening at home who have emailed in, we're going to be doing a big answering session on the next episode, and we're also going to be talking about our Forgecast competition that's going. So you've got uh, until next episode to get on that competition. Uh, just what is to rem- it? It, the reminder is it's a freedom of design. You have to work in at least partners of two. You can have more people in the group, but we want to see equal contributions for everybody. And it's freedom of design, but it must be whimsical. You need something that is just pure whimsy. Mm-hmm. So we want to see so, like, it could be anything. It could be like a, a useless machine that does nothing except make you grin like an idiot <laughs> when you see it. Um, or just, cool. you know, just uh, something that brings a little bit of smile, a bit of light into the world. But it can be anything. It could be a knife. It could be a, a tool that doesn't do anything. Um, it could be it could be anything that your imagination can reach. It's just got to be whimsical, and it's got to be a team effort. So we want to see those uh, those contributions. So um, we'll be talking about the winners of that next next episode. Cool. So uh, everyone's been working away on them secretly for the last two months, and uh, your time is nearly up. <laughs> uh, so where can people, if they're not already following you, Jason, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on, well, best place to go is find me on YouTube. My YouTube channel is type in Jason Knight. It'll pop up. Um, there's a lot of great information on there. If you're really into knife making and learning things, I have a lot of stuff. I also have an online web-based series that I've put all of it over on Patreon. It's, it's there for now. And that's also pretty easy to find. Um, the links are in my Instagram, which... I sometimes use, um, I just <laughs> changed my, uh, I don't have a marketing company right now that I'm working with. So we just changed up some things. And, um, but I'm, I'm really, it's funny. I'm kind of struggling with those 
Instagram, Facebook things, but I still use them because it's easy to see. It's easy to get to. Mm-hmm. But the links are all right there. You just click the link. It'll take you everywhere. But my uh, my web based series, Forge series, it's um that's a good one. And then contacting me is best to message me on Instagram. Yeah. Does that make and, any sense? I don't yeah. And, yep. and everybody needs to check him out at nightforgestudio.com. Nightforge Studio. Oh. Yep. Yep, and it's yeah. uh, Jason Knight, uh, Jason Knight Studios on uh, Instagram, I believe. Yeah, just yeah. Studio. No, Jason studio. Knight Studio. Jason yeah. Knight Studio. Because when it was Knives, I noticed that the algorithms were blocking me. Uh-huh. And I was like, I was getting way more traction, and I just changed it to Studio, and then boom, it went back to normal. I'm like, that's weird. Yeah, <laughs> so every so often that Instagram likes to uh, choose to believe that all knives are evil. Uh, they yeah, like I to do that from time to time. Prep their mm-hmm. food. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah. I hate it so, when you pull out a knife and people go, oh, that's dangerous. It's like, you getting in a car is dangerous. This knife uh, is not dangerous. People get on planes. Yep. Yeah. But uh, Sam, where can people find you? Well, as always, you can find me at Sam Townsbladesmith on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Patreon, Etsy, Redbubble, uh, you know, the kitchen sink. Where can they find you, Alex? I go by Valhalla Ironworks, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and Patreon. And if you want to email into the show with a question uh, about blacksmithing or bladesmithing, send it through to ask.forgecast at gmail.com, and we'll answer it on the show. And uh, you can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram. If you aren't following us already and you're new to the show, welcome. So thanks very much for coming on, Jason. It's been an absolute hoot. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, fellas. I appreciate it. And we'll see you guys around. Keep those forges lit. Keep having fun on the fire.